This morning we're, we're looking at Act 3 of the biblical story. Uh, we've looked at creation. Um, uh, we've looked at the fall. Today we're looking at redemption. Next week we'll look at restoration. We're, this has been a four-week Advent series called One Story, One Savior. And if you've not been here, that the aim of this series has been to demonstrate how the 66 books of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, tell one unified story, which points to one glorious Savior. I don't know how you were raised, but maybe you were raised with the impression that the book is just simply, that the Bible is just a book of rules or a collection of inspiring truisms and poetry. The Bible does include rules, rules that God has purposed to lead us to joy when we obey them. The Bible includes inspiring verses of prose and poetry and wisdom, but woven through the 39 books of the Old Testament, woven through the 27 books of the New Testament, is one story told in four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And this story, this one unified story, showcases for us the glory of the triune God. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the one whom we celebrate every year at Christmas time, the one who in our passage this morning is called the Word Made Flesh. We're going to be in the book of John this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 1? We're going to be zeroing in on verses 1 through 14. And you'll notice that phrase, that title, the Word, the Word made flesh. To explain that, think with me, you can't say in life that you've met someone or that you know someone if you've never exchanged words with them, right? You could almost say that the only way that we can actually truly know someone is by their word. We may know what they look like, we may know where they live, but unless we've had a word with them, we don't really know them. And so it's very significant that our passage this morning refers to Jesus as the Word made flesh. We could do a, a series on examining this word logos, that is word, it means the word. It means that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself has come to earth that we might know him. When we know Jesus, church, we know God. Amen? And so uh, if you've turned to John chapter 1, uh, would you follow along as I read, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Yes, Lord, just a moment ago we prayed this prayer. We pray it again. Father, would you reveal to us this passage by your Holy Spirit? Would you teach it to us? God, would you humble me? Would you somehow, by your grace, use me to help my brothers and sisters to see the majesty of Jesus in this text? That we would know him more, that we would celebrate him more, that we would serve him more, that we would look like him more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we looked at creation two weeks ago, we looked at the fall last week, redemption this week, but in many ways the passage that we've just covered covers all three of those so far. Verses 1 through 4, they point us back to the creation account from Genesis 1 and 2, right? So all stories have a beginning, and the Bible, the story of the Bible is no different. Uh, the Apostle John, who is the, the human author of this, of this book that we're in, the Gospel according to John, he starts off, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him and without Him was not any single thing made that was made. We believe what the Bible says when it comes to creation. We believe it. Namely, that, that the world and everything in it was not the result of a cosmic accident. No cosmic accidents here, but rather the beautiful and wonderful and intended handiwork of a beautiful and wonderful and intentional creator God. Every one of us made through and for God, fashioned for this purpose that we would reflect his beauty and creativity and authority here on the earth. What that means about all of us, what that means about everybody who lives in, in the city of Worcester and beyond is that every one of us has intrinsic, inalienable value and purpose. It also means that no matter what we might think or how we might live our lives, none of us is actually our own property. We belong to him. We're accountable to him as psalm 100 rightly concludes god made us therefore we are his now our passage actually alludes to this divine ownership if you will in verses 10 and 11 when jesus came into the world look he he came into the world that he created it was his. He, he came to live and walk among people he had made whom belonged to him but we also see in verses 10 and 11 that, that when Jesus came to earth, he wasn't warmly received. 
Humanity didn't receive him because humanity did not know him. And humanity did not know him because we had separated ourselves from him long ago, as we saw last week in Genesis 3, which was Act 2 of the biblical story, the fall. Remember? It was only a week ago. Though our first parents, Adam and Eve, had been given everything in the garden to enjoy and to steward, because they were not given access to one single tree, they doubted God's goodness entirely and they rebelled against him. As a result, humanity was physically and spiritually separated from God, resulting in our lostness, in our enslavement to sin. If we had kept reading last week, from Genesis 3 all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, we would have seen things go from bad to worse. The Apostle Paul tells it like this in Romans 1. Though humanity knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, namely themselves, rather than the creator. God simply allowed Adam and Eve to have what they most wanted. They wanted to worship themselves as gods. And the fall of humanity darkens the entire plot of the Old Testament. And yet, as we see in verse 5 of our passage this morning, hallelujah, there remained a light which the darkness of sin could not overcome. A light of hope that was spoken of by the prophets throughout the Old Testament. It was a light of hope that was spoken of by John the Baptist in the New Testament, as we see in verses 6 through 8. That's who that's referring to. John the, and it's not the, the Baptist denomination. <laughs> it's John the Baptizer. That's who, that's who John the Apostle is referring to there in verses 6 through 8. This light of hope is whom John the Baptist, the baptizer, came to hearken and to herald. This light of hope that harkens back to Genesis 3.15. You remember from last week when, when God in his mercy, before the rebellious Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, God made them a promise that an offspring would come an offspring that would be born of a woman, an offspring who would defeat the serpent and thus rescue humanity from their darkness. That's the promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that carries through and is restated over and over throughout the Old Testament and brings us now to the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books, the Gospels as they're known, record the fulfillment of that promise, of that promise that God made in the garden in Genesis 3.15. They record the, pro the promise, the fulfillment of it, by detailing the life and ministry of the promised offspring, Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are biographies of the very one who was promised in Genesis. 
And together, these biographies, excuse me, they form Act 3. Act 3 of the biblical story, which is redemption. And so, redemption, uh, to, to, that, that word redeem is, 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 is probably not used in our everyday vernacular very often. But to redeem is to buy back. It's, it's the issuing of a payment for the purpose of regaining something of value that has been lost. Several years ago, I, I went on a search through all of the, the pawn shops of my hometown looking for um, a guitar of mine that I dearly loved that had been stolen right off the stage of our church. I looked and looked and looked. And when I found it in a pawn shop, it wasn't as simple as me grabbing it off the shelf and walking out. It got a little complicated. I had to redeem it. I had to buy back what was previously mine, which was right, rightly mine. I had to issue a payment in order to regain what was lost. Now, a better illustration of this idea of redemption would come from the Old Testament book of Hosea. Yeah? Where we read the story of the prophet Hosea who marries and he has three children with a woman named Gomer. Now, strange name, I get it. But Gomer is a promiscuous woman, if you've read the story. She abandons Hosea by literally selling herself into the slavery of prostitution. And yet, in a great display of redemption, Hosea searches for Gomer. He finds her, and he buys her out of slavery for the cost of 15 pieces of silver and some grain. It's one of the greatest, it's not a romance, but it is one of the greatest love stories in Scripture. It's also one of the clearest illustrations we have when it comes to the essence of redemption. Hosea pays a costly price to buy back from slavery the bride he loves. Redemption is necessary when something desired has been lost. Redemption, again, is the act of issuing payment for the purpose of regaining something of value that has been lost. Now, of course, when it comes to the story of the Bible, as we saw in Act 2, that something that has been lost is actually a someone. It's a many someones. It's us. It's humanity. It's you and I. We have been lost. And the story of, of Hosea and Gomer really serves as a foreshadow of the events of Act 3, redemption, when Jesus pays a costly price to buy back his bride from slavery. We can kind of see how the Bible is one big story when even these smaller stories are pointing us to Jesus and his redemption of us. Of course, Jesus' situation went down for much more than 15 pieces of silver. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The redemption of God's people would cost Jesus so much, as we know, it would place the Son of God on a cross. It would cost him his life. 
And so the questions that I started asking myself in considering this huge topic, I mean, how, how do you actually cover redemption in a sermon? What was the ultimate cause? This is what I started to ask myself. What was the ultimate cause that led to Christ coming to earth to buy back his people? How did he do it? What was the means, right? So for the remainder of our time, which won't be long, this is going to be a shorter sermon, I I believe, um, we're going to look at two things. Number one, we're going to look at the motive of redemption. And number two, we're going to look at the means of redemption. It's not going to cover everything. Uh, that's it, no sermon covers covers everything, but part of my struggle in this series is just how massive of of a topic you know we're we're looking at here in redemption. Number one, the motive of redemption, asking ourselves what was the ultimate cause that led Christ to come to earth and to die on a cross? Well, scripture traces this motive traces this motive of redemption back to God himself, intrinsic in his attributes of love and justice. Now, it's not made explicit in John chapter 1, our passage this morning. It's not, it's not made explicit, but it is made explicit just a couple chapters later, and I bet you know the verse by heart, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. What was the cause? What was the motive for redemption and of redemption? Paul answers this in in Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which he loved us. For while we were still weak, he writes in Romans 5, While you and I were hopelessly and helplessly lost in sin, it says Christ came at just the right moment in history and died for the ungodly. Paul continues, Very rarely will anyone die for even a righteous person, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still hell-bound sinners. Christ died for us. We could go on and on and on, but suffice it to say the ultimate cause, the motive for redemption, for Christ stepping down from glory into our fallen world, the ultimate cause for Christ being born in a lowly, manger where there there was no room in the inn, the ultimate cause for Christ living a difficult life as a despised Nazarene, and the ultimate cause for Christ dying a criminal death on a Roman cross was not because of anything intrinsically lovable in a fallen people, right? I mean, with all of our greed, think about it, think about your own life, all of our gossip, 
all of our dishonesty and arrogance and anger and gracelessness toward one another, our blame shifting, our overindulgence, our rampant sexual immorality, the stuff that we watch and applaud on TV, the hours and hours we surrender to vanity, obsessing over our bodies and clothes and cars and houses and reputations, the ultimate cause of our redemption isn't rooted in anything in us. It's rooted in the very nature of who God is. He is love. He is just. It ought to astound us this time of year when we read the words, the word became flesh. That the eternal, transcendent creator God of the universe would lower himself into our exile and save us from our willful rebellion against him. Look, this is, this is probably the greatest apologetic for the Christian faith that is, that is out there. No other faith and or religious system in the world boasts of a God who comes down to rescue the very rebels who turn from him. Every other faith system, religious system in the world believes in some way, shape, or form that we must elevate ourselves, that we must pick ourselves up from our bootstraps and work harder and and discover enlightenment and find our own way to God. But only in biblical Christianity do we find a God who comes to us to make right all that we have made wrong. Glory. It ought to humble us. It ought to stir in us thankful worship. We ought to remind ourselves of the glory of this season every morning lest we get caught up in all of the distractions that are around us this time of year. The pinnacle of God's love is on display in this miraculous truth that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've just come out of the this, this series in the book of Galatians. And oh, does this not, does this truth we're looking at right here just not scream the joy and freedom and glory in understanding that it's not ever been about our merit and our religious performance that has somehow earned Jesus' redeeming love. It's because of his marvelous, miraculous grace. Because of the words like these that were spoken to God's people in Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Paul reflects upon this love of God, this motive for his redeeming of us, and he says, you know who? (laughs) If Christ came all of that way, to die on the cross in place of us sinners, who's going to separate us from that love? Neither death nor life, he says, angels, rulers, nor things present, things to come, 
There's no height, there's no depth, there's no power, there's nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Many of us in this, in the Christmas season especially, are uh, painfully aware of our loneliness and disconnectedness from, from family, from friends. There's... There's hurt underneath of all of the smiles and the Christmas cheer. And I wonder what would be a greater comfort than for those of us in Christ to just simply reflect on just how much God loves us. The love of God was not the sole motivator in his redemption, his coming and dying. God is love, but he's also just. And in his justness, he cannot, he will not tolerate, he will not overlook, he will not ignore sin. And so this, this question that, that, that bubbles to the surface when considering our redemption in Christ is how can a holy and just God how can he remain holy and just while at the same time showing unmerited favor and mercy and love to sinners like you and I? To murderers, to thieves, to gossips, to drunkards and porn addicts and adulterers and self-righteous Pharisees like me. And this is where we come to the cross. This is when we come to the cross. Number two, the means of redemption. If you've ever wondered, like my wife and I do almost constantly, why Jesus' death on the cross was necessary. God, why did it all have to play out this way? Why the cross? We ask that an awful lot when we're around Easter time and watching the passion of the Christ afresh again. You know, why? Why this? It's because only by Jesus' atoning death on the cross was God able to show mercy to sinners while still punishing sin. 2 Corinthians 5 reveals to us that God the Father placed our sin upon his sinless son Jesus. Jesus who never once sinned. He became, Jesus became your sin and mine. He became our lust and our greed and our materialism. He became our judgmentalism. He became, he became it all and then willingly bore the rightful punishment for our sin, which is death. What's more is that when we look to Jesus on that cross in his resurrection and we put our believing faith in him, when we trust in his completed work for our forgiveness and salvation, when we come to seek that forgiveness and healing and salvation in him, God the Father then credits us with all of the spotless righteousness that Jesus earned in his sinless life. He places upon us the spotless righteousness of Jesus' perfect life. 
This is what's called substitutionary atonement or penal substitutionary atonement where the sinless, spotless lamb Jesus became our sin and died on a cross in our place as our substitute to then raise to life and grant whoever comes to him by faith the righteousness that he earned with his perfect life. It's an exchange. It's the centerpiece of the gospel. Jesus' blood is our redemption from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin. When Jesus died on the cross, God's anger against sin was all gobbled up by Jesus on the cross. All of his wrath was poured out and so therefore for God's people who are underneath the blood of Jesus, there is no more penalty that is left. There is no more condemnation. That's where Paul gets that wording for those who are in Christ Jesus because the penalty of sin has been absorbed. Jesus' blood redeems us from the power of sin in that the enemy, Satan, on that cross was defeated. It is finished. Now there's lingering effect of that fall and, and he still is working, but it's ultimately from a standpoint of defeat. And, the, and, the, and the, the, the wonderful thing about the fact that we, that God's people, have been redeemed from the power of sin is that it no longer, it no longer lays hold of us we are able to withstand temptation now because of the blood of Jesus. And ultimately, ultimately, we're going to look at this next week in restoration. The blood of Jesus redeems us from the presence of sin. There will be a day when Jesus returns when all presence of sin will be eradicated. Amen. And creation will be restored and we will, God's people, once again walk in right relationship with unveiled face, almost like it was in Eden, but even more glorious. The sun will be done away with and the glory of Jesus will be the light. We'll look a little bit of that, uh, look into a little bit of that next week, Lord willing. But to those who receive these gospel truths, verses 12 and 13, who believe in Jesus' name that Jesus' life and death on the cross and his resurrection were all that is needed for us to be forgiven and, and restored to right standing with God, all who believe in his name, God gives the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hallelujah. What we gather from Scripture is that the means of redemption on the cross is the glory of God on display. And the Apostle John even it reflects this in verse 14 of our passage. We have seen His glory. The glory of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth and love and justice. Hallelujah. I'm going to stop there and, and pray. Would you pray with me?
It's been an intimidating week, Lord, to even consider this passage and to consider this topic. And what I pray, Lord, that we walk away with um, is an absolute marveling at the fact that the eternal, transcendent, triune God would in the Son of God be become flesh, to put on flesh and dwell among us. Jesus, we thank you for, for entering into a world that you made, but that had willingly sold itself into slavery and prostitution of sin. That like the, the perfect bridegroom that you are, you came to seek and to save that which was lost to redeem. We thank you, God, for the marvelous truth that the buyback price oh, was so costly. It costly you your life to lay your life down as a substitute, as a ransom for many, for murderers and adulterers and self-righteous Pharisees and gossips and drunkards. Thank you that you were so willing to, to pay that costly price. And thank you, God, that the story did not end with Jesus on the cross, but Jesus resurrected calling us to come and to believe and to put our trust in the fact that he and he alone has done everything needed to secure our forgiveness, to usher us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. I pray, Lord, for, um, for, uh, for us, for this church family here, God, in, in this holiday season, that this good news of redemption would be at the forefront of our minds. I pray, Lord, that for the hopeless that we come into contact with in and around the community, Lord, that we might, with our lips and our lives, display the beauty and the wonder of this story, that we would live it with conviction. After all, Jesus, you did not come all of this way. You did not surrender your life on a cross. You did not go through this painstaking, costly price, uh, costly process of redemption just to secure one way of many to the Father. You did this, Lord, because you are the way, the only way, the truth and the life. And I pray, God, for these people, including myself, that in this season, God, we would be able to advocate that. The, the glory of, of this gospel would be... Um, would be evident in our lives and that we would have opportunity to share it, to articulate it, that lost people might be found. We thank you so much for the love, God, that you have demonstrated in that while we were still sinners, you died. Let that be on the forefront of our minds, God, as we uh, continue to, to worship, to sing, uh, to simply say, uh, Jesus, thank you in, in song. In Jesus' name, amen.